Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam Allahumma alamna ma anfa'na Anfa'na bima alamtana Wazirna ilman wa amalan salihah Allahumma wafiqna lima tuhibbuhu wa tarda Waja'alna min abidika su'ada Wa amitna ala kalimat al-huda Allahumma sallallahu ikhwanana Today we continue, inshaAllah, and um, subhanAllah. I think we did this last time, that we did the text. We're going to do it again because it's so appropriate, uh, this point that we're on. And, uh, you know, as uh, mentioned in a couple different places, uh, it's important to always remember that everyone has their wajib and everyone's wajib is a little bit different everyone has their responsibility, their obligation and everyone's obligation is a little bit different so depending on the time, the place, the circumstance the details of a person's situation what they're exposed to, what they're not exposed to the opportunities they have, the opportunities they don't have everyone's responsibility will be different <coughs> and part of the uh, one of the things I try to think about is that I feel like sometimes how can I say this? Well, sometimes it's really hard to say things. You don't want them to be misunderstood. One of the nice things about having community that comes together every week is that hopefully things aren't understood as 10 second statements, but they're understood in the context of a broader body of teaching and understanding. Um, but I often ask myself the question of, if I lived in a time that didn't have modern communications, how would I be functioning? Uh, because I, f I feel like a lot of times when we don't have that, we're able to more clearly focus on the immediate obligations that are in front of us. Why this could be misunderstood is because having that kind of does change our obligations in some ways. You know, it's, it's not that clear. Uh, we do have access to information, and we do have the ability to send it out, and we do have different possibilities. So, like, the obligations shift. But, uh, like, in the end of the day, we're a Muslim community that's here in this country, and our primary responsibility is here in this country and to the development and the maintenance of a community in this country. And uh, that doesn't mean that we don't care about anything else. Actually, quite the opposite. Uh, we have a, part of our responsibility and part of our obligation is that we have a disproportionate, that word I've been hearing it all week, uh, we have a disproportionate responsibility perhaps to people in other places, in fact. But we're not going to be able to help people in other places if we're not strong. Um, and, and that's always something that, like me, on a personal level, I have to be strong. And then every circle that flows out from that also has to be strong, you know. So how do I become strong? I become strong by maintaining my spiritual well-being, by maintaining my emotional well-being, by maintaining my physical well-being. Um, that includes my financial well-being, you know, the establishment of myself, my family, my community. And uh, 
one of the things we learn actually from the example of the Prophet is that that is a worthwhile consideration because there's a reason the Muslims weren't given permission to make jihad while they were in Mecca there's a reason for that it's because they would have been wiped out <laughs> it's a very practical reason it's not it's, it's very clear if, if you fight right now you will lose and you will be wiped out and even that's part of what the Prophet was making dua about at Badr, right? He's raising his hands and he's saying, Ya Allah, this little group of people, if you don't give us victory, Ya Allah, like the light of Islam is going to be gone and you won't be worshipped in the way that you should be and so on. This is part of the dua of the Prophet So it's not against Iman, for example, to have long-term considerations. Um, part of the long-term consideration, and again, it shouldn't be misunderstood. Uh, go to protest, it's important, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, some people don't like, I'm, me personally, I, I'm not really like a protest person, it's just not really my thing, but uh, I, I don't, I wouldn't tell someone not to go, for example, you know, alhamdulillah, people should go, in fact, today I was planning to go, but I'm worried that uh, usually in the, because there's a protest in Orange County, close to the Majlis, uh, but it's at class time Like it's 4 to 6 And usually our class is at 5 So we postponed class to 6 for this week And I, I would go But I'm afraid people won't get that notice And they might show up at 5 So I have to go to the Majlis And like occupy them <laughs> bad, bad word choice <laughs> You know spend time with them and be with them uh, In case they didn't get the announcement You know what I mean But Otherwise, I would go just on, on principle, but the um, the idea is um, it's interesting. Um, you know, people do different things. It's good. You should do it. Um, but we shouldn't. We should also think strategically. We should think long term. We should think multi multi layered, and um, and we should try to have a strong community. You know, a community that has strong financial backing, strong in financial infrastructure, um, beautiful buildings, beautiful services, strong staff, competent leadership, you know, all of these things, we should strive for these things. And part of, part of the way that we do that, when everything seems overwhelming, is to do what we're supposed to do. You know, they say, that as you do, it will be done to you. So sometimes like we ourselves have to just be better and we have to be, we have to increase our understanding, we have to increase our knowledge, we have to increase our spiritual commitment, our emotional well-being, our financial well-being and all of these things, they work together, inshaAllah, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allahumma walli umuruna khiyarana wa la walli umuruna shirarana, you know, this dua, that oh Allah, give authority uh, to those of, to those who are the best amongst us and not to those who are the worst amongst us. Allahumma uh, amin. But part of what we do is we nuwasal al-sayr. You know, we continue on the path that we're on. So, sure, you might make certain adjustments, uh, especially in very serious situations, but certain things have to remain. Like, I have a job, I have a responsibility, I have life, I have to live it, I have a body, I have to take care of it. I have, these are my responsibilities right in front of me. 
and I'm going to make sure that I continue with them. And part of that is to continue learning, to continue studying, um, to continue trying to grow in that way. Um, uh, there's a call that came that doesn't usually come. Let me just um, respond to this brother real quick. So, alhamdulillah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, it's, it's very interesting. The verse that's always talked about when it comes to learning is the verse that talks about this. It says, It's not appropriate that all the Muslims should go out. Like there's a battle to be fought. The verse says, All the Muslims shouldn't go out. It says, so rather, there should be a group who stay behind and they learn the religion so that when the people who went out come back, they can teach it to them and they can give them good guidance, they can give them foundation and so on and so forth, right? So everyone has uh, a post, so to speak. I think this is a good, certain concepts. Like, if, we're, if you're part of a community, if you're part of a people, if you're living life in any sort of way that's not completely disconnected and out of touch with reality of human existence, everyone has a post. <laughs> the question is, what post am I on right now? And, uh, you know, that can change from time to time. Don't judge me. Actually, you can judge me if you want. It's whatever. But I was listening to this interview with Fat Joe. You know, I don't know if people know who Fat Joe is. <laughs> Fat Joe is a, he's a rapper. Primarily a rapper. And, uh, also, like, was the head of a, subhanAllah, not the best record label to be quoting in a Muslim lecture, but he was the, the head of a record label called Terror Squad. <laughs> Fat Joe was in this interview, and, you know, he was saying how his whole life, basically, he's been the guy who was in charge and taking care of other people from the time he was 14 years old doing things that are illegal at that time. But he's like, I was 14 years old, I was the guy, take 20 guys to the restaurant, pay for everyone's food, he's like always in. He's like, but one of the things that we don't, uh, he was talking about hip hop, you know, he's like in the music industry and entertainment, he's like people, a lot of people don't put other people on. And that was a really interesting point he was making. He's like, a lot of people don't put other people on. He's like, but I put other people on. He's like, DJ Khaled, I put DJ Khaled on. I put this person on, I put this person on, I put this person on. Meaning like, I'm the one who in my position of leadership and authority gave these people a chance and they became who they became, right? And then he said, um, he said, and still with all of that, I know when I'm number two. He's like, and a lot of people don't know how to understand when they're number two. That was like a deep, that was a, it was a very interesting point he's making. Of course, there's like some profanity in between and stuff like that, you know, alhamdulillah. We're, We've heard things before. And um, so he, and then he says, and then he specifically mentioned DJ Khaled, which forget all the controversy right now for anyone who's, but he said, I'm the one who put him on, but I know now at this point, DJ Khaled is the, num he's the number one man. He's like, so if I show up with DJ Khaled at a whatever event or something, he's like, I'm the one who's gonna open the door for him. I open the door for him, he's number one now. 
I, I put him on, but I'll open the door for him. He's like, if we walk in the, we walk in the, on the red carpet or something, he's like, and people are greeting him, I'm on post. This is my point, right? He's like, I'm on post. I'm not there to be Fat Joe the celebrity. I'm here to be number two to DJ Khaled. I was like, this is a really interesting, like, you know, concept of all of this. My point in saying all of this is that everyone has a post. Everyone has a post. I have to be like, what, what is my post? What am I on post for right now? And it could, you know, change from different times and places. Anyways, enough. Strange talk. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. We were at the fundraiser for Islah Halay last night and the celebration of the life of Imam Sadiq Safir. Hafidhullah. May Allah give him a long life and accept from him. And that came up a lot. So, you know, like in, in that community, there's a very clear understanding of this idea, you know, like this is where you are, this is where you are, I'm on this right now, you're in charge of that, like it's very clear in that way. Um, if, if you don't know about Islah Halay uh, and the work of Imam Jihad Safir, our, our dear friend and Imam, and uh, his father, Imam Sadiq, Allah give him a long life and protect both of them. It's very important work. It's very good to follow and understand what they're doing <coughs> in South LA. MashaAllah. They gave one of the things I thought was amazing. Like I, 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 I came back from Egypt and started working as an Imam in 2012. Is that the right timeline? Yeah, two, we came back technically in 2011, but I took on the Imam role in 2012. And uh, I had met Imam Jihad slightly before that. But of course, when like now I'm the Imam of a major center, he's doing what he's doing. And like we had a lot of respect and love for him because of what he was doing. Then we got to know each other a little bit, you know. And we saw like the seeds of what he was trying to do. This was with 2012 ish, you know, 2012, 2013. 2013. Imam Jihad really starts to like take leadership in a sense of Masjid Ibadullah in South Central LA. 2000, which had been there for probably 40 years, you know. And uh, he took, he said our budget, they said last night they, they talked about it, they said our budget in 2013 was $50,000 a year and nobody was paid. No, he, he's like, my father was the imam of that community. I watched him day in and day out. He was never paid his whole, his whole time. He was an exterminator. He would like, you know, kill bugs in people's houses and stuff like that. Come home next morning, he'd go to work uh, in the masjid. And um, 2013, they had a budget of $50,000. 2023, their budget was $1.8 million. I was like, wow, mashallah. Like, you built something. You know, and that's but what's important to recognize is that he didn't just build that jihad by himself out of nowhere. Now, sometimes there's groundwork that has to happen that like is not so glorious, right? So like Imam Sadiq was part of the original founding of the Shura Council in Southern California. He was he's one of the original founders of the Muslim community in Southern California, you know, especially LA and Orange County. And his father did that work for years and years and years and years and built those relationships. And so Imam Jihad was able to come into 
all of these relationships and all of these things and really uh, bring great things from them. You know, so mashallah now they have, they have a school and they have a masjid and they have a food pantry and they have transitional housing and they have uh, mental, mental health services for, you know, especially for their community and Crenshaw and Slauson. And uh, mashallah, they're doing amazing work. So may Allah give them tawfiq. And I, I think it's important that people learn about it. <coughs> so bismillah. Now that half of the session is over, bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Qala al-Musannifu. Hafidhullah ta'ala wa naf'anallahu iyahu bi'ulumi fi darin Amin. Cleanse your heart from hate and jealousy but oppose oppressors. This is where we left off. I think we covered it last time, but I'm going to read it again. <coughs> Cleanse your heart from hate and jealousy, but oppose oppressors. The feta, the person who does futuwa, <coughs> does not hold grudges, <coughs> Excuse me. does not envy, and does not make enemies. However, he opposes oppressors because whoever does not oppose the oppressor becomes complicit in the oppression. A person who embarks on the path of futuwa must, therefore, remove all feelings of jealousy, hatred, and enmity from his heart. Oh, thank you. MashaAllah. These feelings are the biggest obstacles to moral and spiritual development. Jealousy destroys all virtuous behavior just as fire burns wood. We talked about that before, right? The fatah cannot be jealous because one of the basic rules of futuwa, thank you, is to love for others that which one loves for oneself, which makes it the complete opposite of jealousy. How can someone who wishes for the deprivation of a blessing or merit possessed by another person and desires having that blessing or merit exclusively for himself make sacrifices for that person? That's a great quote. Now what is jealousy? You see someone, something someone else has, you don't want them to have it, you want it for yourself. So how can you actually make sacrifices for that person now? They have this feeling inside. But now I can't sacrifice for this person. So I won't be able to do futuwa because I don't have the requisite internal uh, strength that's necessary. <coughs> SubhanAllah, last night they showed this video of Imam Sadiq and like talked about his life and stuff. It was amazing. And, um, you know, he's quite elderly now. And they, they gave him the award and they brought him the microphone. They asked if he wanted to say anything. He just said, Assalamu Alaikum. And then he said, basically, uh, you know, I'm grateful for all of this. Expressed his gratitude. And then he said, and we have to continue. We have a lot of work to do. We have to be patient. That was his whole talk. <laughs> because he's someone who like he worked, you know, he did service, did work, didn't do talking, you know, other than when it needs to happen. Otherwise we just do work. But managed to keep people together, you know, bring people together, deal with the issues, deal with the problems, manage the relationships, but keep the people together. That's something that it was really clear in the air last night. And I and I, I thought to myself, like, this is a really beautiful thing. Because you have this community, it's in South Central LA. For the most part, vast majority of the Muslim community doesn't really relate to them or their experiences, for it to be honest, right? 
and and yet everybody's there. Like I don't know how many people were in that room. Uh, uh, at some point, I thought about trying to count. Like I think. There were probably a hundred tables, and I think it was sold out, 10 seats per table. So there was like a solid thousand people there, you know, um, of every background, every part of the community, every background, every, you know, there's people who raised their hand, donated $50,000 on the spot, right? Like to, to a community is a beleaguered community for all intensive purposes, like, Internally very strong, but in terms of system, an oppressed community, right? And uh, you know, it was just really beautiful. Like, see, all these people have managed to stay together. There's like a lot of love in the room. There's people are very happy, saying salam to each other, happy to see each other from all different organizations and, and masajid, and like very, very beautiful. Subhanallah. And uh, you just think like that's that's the work of these these men, you know, people like Dr. Muzammil. Hafidhullah, people like Imam Sadeen, you know, that generation of people. Uh, SubhanAllah. I know we're in San Diego. I don't know if people can relate. San Diego somehow has become like, I don't know, it's like, a, it's like the sixth finger on someone's hand or something. <laughs> why, why? I don't know why it's so isolated. It's a very interestingly isolated place for, for being part of something that's like so much bigger. It's very isolated. Um, anyways. It's just a uh, oppressed uh, uh, go against the oppressed, but don't have jealousy and hatred in your heart. This is point, and this is very important because otherwise, you know, say you fight for to to alleviate oppression, but the inside isn't right. Most likely, if you get put in a position of authority, you're also going to oppress. It's, it's just going to repeat the same thing, and of course, there's some thinkers who have uh, talked extensively about this. You know, this problem of the cycle of the oppressor, uh, the oppressed fighting against the oppressor, and then eventually gaining some sort of liberation, but they themselves become an oppressor. This is not the cycle that we want, right? We want to part of prophetic guidance is to break from that, and uh, and to be able to do things differently. You know. <coughs> And part of that is reconciliation. Uh, again, you know, when you speak in generalities, it's very easy for things to be misunderstood. Uh, how, how, uh, how it plays out in a particular case, different conversation, you know. But as a general rule, the Prophet would try to reconcile. And part of that is because he doesn't have this hatred and jealousy in his heart. Like if I can reconcile, I recognize there's a greater benefit in reconciling. If I can do that without getting played, right? <laughs> like this is the problem. A lot of times the reconciliation thing is basically someone getting played. But if I can do that and not get played, then alhamdulillah, that's good. Even if the other side thinks they're going to do that. But I know that they think that and I'm ready for that and I'm still going to reconcile with them, right? And, you know, for the most part, I think, like, Treaty of Hudaybiyah is pretty much like that. Like, I'm pretty sure the Prophet ﷺ had a good reason to believe that these people are going to betray their treaty. But he's also looking at it and thinking, 
Allahu I mean, you can't think for the Prophet them, but ostensibly, the like, okay, yamkurun wa yamkurullah. They can play their games, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has His plan. So you play your little games, and in the meantime, I'm going to shore up my strength. So when you betray the trust, I'm going to be ready now, and then everything's going to be clear, right? So, and then everyone will come to the side of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And in the end of it, everyone came to the side of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam It is worth noting, however, that oppressors are excluded from this rule uh, The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, whoever among you sees an evil, they should change it with their hand uh, I don't know what he means actually by this rule Maybe that, uh, what is he, what, let me go back and try to follow what he's saying. The feta cannot be jealous because one of the basic rules, how can someone who wishes for the deprivation of a blessing or merit possessed by another person? Or maybe he's saying that you can wish for the, an oppressor to lose whatever blessing they have. Maybe this is what he means. It should make sense. Like in a, in, to be an authority is, is a type of blessing. To have power, to have authority. If someone's an oppressor and you want them to lose that authority, that's okay. Because <laughs> you don't want them to be an authority. So he says at the end, it is one of the requirements of Futua to oppose the oppressors and fight them. Oh. That foot is extremely asleep. Uh, it's worth noting, I think it's worth noting, just for the sake of pushing against some of the false propaganda, that he in this book often talks about futuwa as part of a broader understanding of tasawwuf, of Sufism. Uh, and uh, the, there's a challenge in understanding today because many times when we look at in our modern world, people who are affiliated with Tasawwuf, we often see them standing next to tyrants and oppressors. And so it creates some sort of dissonance, you know? Like, what's going on here? Uh, sometimes there can be explanations that we don't know about, this is point number one, but putting that on the side, uh, the reality of this historically is not that. So many of the um, uh, so we mentioned before like the, the role of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani and the jihad movement against the Crusaders was essential. And of course Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani is a major figure of Tasawwuf, uh, probably the biggest, like after the Sahaba and stuff like that, probably, he's probably the biggest figure. And um, his role in the Crusades was essential. And uh, even in the modern period, people like Sheikh Omar Mukhtar, people don't usually call him Sheikh, but he's a Sheikh, Sheikh Omar Mukhtar in Libya, lion, the Lion of the Desert, you know. They say that he used to make khatam every five days. He would finish his recitation of the Quran every five days. He was a Sheikh, you know. And he was from the Sanusiya. The Sanusiya uh, group of Tasawwuf was very active in the jihad in North Africa. Um, and he was like a prominent figure in that. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jazairi was also a Sheikh um, and he was also uh, Qadiri you know, in Tasawwuf 
So uh, these, they were on the front lines that, in Dagestan, right, and uh, the, the one that Khabib, uh, the fighter, his grandfather was a lieutenant under uh, Imam Shamil, who was, he was also a sheikh. You know, like the leader of the jihad against the Russians was a legitimate sheikh. Like, like they would learn from him. <laughs> you know, he, he went to he went to school, he studied, he went to Syria. Actually, he met Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jazairi in Syria. Subhanallah, they met each other. They were in the same time period, and then you know he he fought those battles against the Russians and everything else, and he was a sheikh. Uh, so that's the that's the real spirit of this whole thing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be properly aligned. Uh, number 11, see sunnah as fard and do it and see makruh as haram and stay away from it. This is going to need some qualifications. Alright, the person who embarks on the path of futuwa should constantly raise the quality of their moral behavior. This can only be possible by aiming for the highest standards of ethical conduct. Doing what is obligatory and avoiding what is forbidden represents the minimum standards of ethical conduct. It is only by seeing the sunnah as a fard and seeing the makruh as haram that it is possible to rise to the highest levels of morality and virtue. In the field of morality, doing this can be achieved by constantly acting on the sunnah and by staying away from what is reprehensible makruh. Okay. <clears throat> so, most basic breakdown is that the ethical rulings on actions take five. Right? You have things that are obligatory, wajib or fard. You have things that are recommended, sunnah or mustahab. You have things that are permissible, mubah. You have things that are disliked, makruh. And you have things that are prohibited, haram. Okay? So what he's saying here is that in order for one to attain to the highest levels of virtue and conduct, they have to treat things that are recommended as if they're required. And they have to treat things that are disliked as if they're prohibited. And this will essentially train the person to function at a higher level. Right? It's very important here that we're not only thinking about acts of worship. There's a lot of other things in life outside of acts of worship. As long as they're actions, they also have rulings. Okay? So I have to train myself to act at this standard. Right? Uh, again, we always remember the principle hard cases make bad law. Hard cases make bad law. Okay? So, whenever we have a general rule, there's going to be exceptions to it. And also, whenever we have something that we apply to ourselves as individuals, when we look at it on a broader communal level, we may not apply it in the same way. Okay? So if I, for example, or maybe not myself, but some other good person, uh, they treat things that are recommended as if they're obligatory, right? They don't do that to other people, right? This is one of the big mistakes that Muslims make. Out of like wanting to, just because I want to do something extra for myself and hold myself to a higher standard, doesn't mean I force that on other people. Okay? I'll show that to other people. Like make it help them to understand that there's a gradation here. There's there's a you could do it this way or you could do it that way, right? And you help them to understand that without shaming them and, and, and bullying them into doing that thing which is more, 
right? I'm going to do that for myself. And, or, or that good person is going to do that for themselves. And uh, so that's, that's point number one. Point number two is that you might have hard cases that break that law. Okay? So maybe the person generally will hold themselves to this standard, but they might have a situation where they make an exception for any number of reasons. Uh, I always, if you've probably noticed, I like to give general ideas, and then I like to complicate them. <laughs> and this is important because that's how you start to think properly. Because not everything is just a general rule. Actually, very few things are like that. There's a general rule, we use it to guide us. It's, it's kind of like the guiding star, you know? It's like that North Pole. There's that North Pole, I know I'm going north. And that's the general direction I'm going in. But if I'm like walking in that direction and all of a sudden there's a huge hole, I might need to go around the hole, <laughs> you know? <laughs> don't just like jump into the hole and like, okay, I'm gonna have to get out the other side now. I don't know how to get out the other side. Well, yeah, you could have just walked around and you still would have been going to the same place, right? So uh, it's necessary to understand both the general concept and also how do I recognize the reality that there are going to be exceptions to that. And yes, that does put a greater onus on the person and yes, that's okay. Like we have to be able to think and have wisdom and develop it and, and consider situations. It's like we mentioned before, and a lot some of the early things in fiqh, they won't give you the rule. You know, probably a lot of people, if you ask them, how much movement in salat breaks your salat? Extra movement. Anyone? How much movement in salat? Three, right? Three, five. Anyone else? Most people say three, five, stuff like that, right? It's not what the early books say. The later books, they say that. They want, because people ask too many questions, they want to give you a rule. <laughs> okay, here's three, yalla, move on, you know? But it's not actually three. If you look like in the Hanafi school, that's what it says. Three, three extra movements and like one, and one rukun, one rukun of salat, and like, you know, you have this whole breakdown, right? What's the actual thing? The actual thing is, if someone looks at you and they have doubt as to whether or not you're praying. That's the actual thing, you know? So how much of an impurity is not overlooked if it's on your clothes? Say you have like blood or urine or something on your clothes, you wanna pray. How much is overlooked? How much is not overlooked? If you go to actual, like the fatwa is, if it's a major impurity, it has to be less than the inside of the palm of your hand. If it's less than that, then it's overlooked. Someone has like a little bit of blood, got on their pants, they were playing in the playground, whatever. They're at school, they have like this much blood on their pants. They can still pray. It's overlooked. What's the actual position said in the beginning? مَا يَسْتَقْبِحُهُ nadir. Like what, if the person looks at it, they find it repulsive. It's not, it's not defined in the same way. When people ask too many questions, they define it, right? <laughs> but what the actual idea was, like when, and, 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 and madhabs differ. The Hanbali school, they refuse to define it. The Hanafi school, they define it. Even though they have this roughly same position. Like the original statement would be, what you don't like, or what's a little bit. 
Hanbalis are like, we're not going to define it, we leave it like that. Hanafis are like, no, we define it. People are asking too many questions. You know? Give them something to work with. So it's very interesting. But my point is that, yeah, like, look at, like, analyze your own situation. A lot of the books will say, it's fi'ayn al mubtala. Means like, how do you know when it's too much? It's according to the opinion of the one that's afflicted with that situation. You're in the situation, you have the general principle, figure out how to make a conclusion based on that situation. Have some wisdom. The Arabs would say, uh, send someone who's wise and don't tell them what to do. Send someone who's wise and don't tell them what to do. That's why, to be quite honest, if I'm invited to speak somewhere and they give me a long description of what I'm supposed to speak about, I feel offended actually. And oftentimes I'll, I'll tell them. <laughs> they send me like half page description. We're, mashallah, please come and speak for 15 minutes. Here's your half page description of what we want you to speak about. I'll tell them, like, so why don't you just speak? You already know what you want to say, and you go ahead and say it. <laughs> why are you asking me to speak? Well, because we're giving guidelines to the speakers and so on. If you don't trust the speaker, don't invite them. It's that simple. Like, you don't trust them to give a message according to what you're trying to do, don't invite them. You don't have to invite everybody, <laughs> just because, you know? Like, we had to put everyone on the flyer to like, I'm not talking about anything in particular, but like, you know, we're gonna invite everyone, we give them a page-long description of what they should say. If you don't trust me to deliver a message, don't invite me. It's that, yeah. <laughs> it's that simple, you know? And the same thing, like, we can't define everything. We have to learn. We have to understand, gain some, gain some level of wisdom, gain some level of experience. You know, and, and experience is what really makes the difference. You know, Imam Jihad, subhanAllah, he said something in the video. He was, they, were t they were interviewing him and he was crying. You could see the tears on his face. And he's like, my father is my hero to me. And he said, I spent, he's like, I spent almost every day of my life with my father. You know? So he learned everything. And, and one of the other brothers who came and spoke, Naeem Shah, who's Papa Shah's, uh, I was telling you guys a Papa Shah story, Papa Shah's son, Naeem Shah, he flew all the way from, I think he lives in like Arabia or somewhere, he flew all the way for the event just to say a few words about Imam Sidi, you know? He said, for 10 years I served Imam Sidi. He would call me in the morning, he'd be like, Naeem, we gotta go here, we gotta go there, we gotta, we just go everywhere. And through that you see, okay, this is how you deal with this, this is how you deal with that, this is how you handle this situation. All of this is to say what? Treat the sunnah as an obligation, treat the makruh as a prohibition, and know that there's going to be times when you break that. When you break that. Ibn Taymiyyah talked about that. He said, you know, you look, he talked about it a lot actually, rahimahullah. He said, what is that statement? SubhanAllah, I haven't thought about this quote in years. الاجتماع والاتلاف من أعظم الأمور التي أوجبها الله على عبادي. I think that to bring people together, to keep them together, is from the biggest obligations that Allah has put on His servants. So I might personally treat something as an obligation, you know, or as, uh, take something that's optional. I might treat it as an obligation. And uh, but in me doing that, now I come in a communal setting. And me doing that will take the people apart. So I'll just let it go. i give you an example. One brother, I mean, maybe I'm putting myself a little bit on the, 
it's hard to straddle multiple camps, you know? The, the traditional Hanafi camp might uh, ostracize me for this one, although I don't think they really accept me in the first place because, you know, like Azhari trained Hanafis don't really get the same respect as others. But um, uh, one brother asked me, he said he's Hanafi, so usually he doesn't combine between prayers. <coughs> but he's traveling with his family and they're accustomed to combining between prayers. And he's usually the one who leads the Salah. So he said, what do you think I should do? You know? Like technically the fatwa is you don't combine between prayers and the family has to deal with it, you know? <laughs> That's technically the fatwa. But I told him, like, if I was in your situation, I'd probably just combine prayers and then keep everyone together. You know, it's not... Uh, there's room for that in the Sharia. Keep the family together, let people pray together, so on. So it's not like we don't have to... Uh, like, however we can keep people together, it's good. That's my point. That requires a lot of things. Number 12. Get along well with your brothers, adapt to them, and avoid conflict. SubhanAllah, it's related. Get along well with your brothers, adapt to them, and avoid conflict. One of the basic rules of Futuwa is to be in harmony with friends. Muwafaqatul Ikhwan. He puts the Arabic here. Muwafaqatul Ikhwan. The Fatah makes the utmost effort to be in harmony with the people around him, to carry out teamwork, and to preserve unity without causing unnecessary conflict and division. SubhanAllah. Muwafaqatul Ikhwan literally means to agree with your brothers and sisters. And we've talked about this before, right? Again, it relates to this again. Like if I can not disagree, it'd be really good. I don't disagree, you know. Uh, I may have told you this before, but there's one, one sheikh, we visited him, and he, had, he has a masjid, you know. And, you know, many of the like traditional shayukh, they're kind of particular about tarawih is 20 rakam, you know. <laughs> like, the four madhabs, basically, tarawih is 20 rakam. Uh, maybe some of the Maliki said 36, but basically it's 20 rakam. And you should pray 20 rakam. They're pretty particular about it, you know. Went to the Shaykh's place in Ramadan. Of course, they have tarawih in the masjid, right? Find that the tarawih in the masjid is 8 rakam. I was surprised, you know. Like, it's your masjid. You, you call the shots here. It's your masjid. Tarawih is eight rakah. So I asked him, I'm like, Shaykh, kind of surprised, you know. <laughs> not that I, I, you guys know me well enough now, based on the story that came before, that I'm not really into, like, arguing about these kind of things, as much as we can possibly not. And, but I asked the Shaykh, I'm like, so eight rakah, like, what's, what's the deal, you know? He said, alhamdulillah, we came here and we opened this masjid. And the people in the area, they're used to praying eight rakam. So we pray eight rakam. And they come. And we get to know each other. That's it. That's, that's the whole answer. <laughs> that's the whole answer, actually. You know? Then they come, and we get to know each other. And alhamdulillah, over time we get to know each other. We understand. Things will change. You know, people will understand. It's like subhanAllah. Amazing. And very interesting eight rakam, by the way. One juz, read one juz, but very quickly done. We were done usually in like an hour and 15 minutes. Eight, eight rakah, uh, one juz. And, and every single day, Maghrib was very short. 
No elongation of Maghrib. Every single day, Maghrib was like, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ إِنَّا عَطَيْنَاكَ الْكَوْثِرِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ Go يَفْتَعِ You know? <laughs> Don't, no need to overdo this, right? It's not the time to prove that you know Qur'an. <laughs> it's time to just finish Salah. Uh, so anyways, get along well with your brothers, adapt to them, and avoid conflict. <coughs> this is on the point of preserve unity without causing unnecessary conflict. Okay, Is the requirement of true friendship not to object to our friend's wishes and desires as long as they are permissible? That's why our ancestors said friendship means saying all right. Friendship means saying all right. Various levels of friendship are meant here. First of all, as stated in the expression, if you want a friend, Allah is enough. The Fatah says all right to Allah by obeying his commands and staying away from his prohibitions. Second, the Fatah says all right to his fellow human beings to preserve harmony and avoid conflict. That's really beautiful. Right? It's very beautiful. Uh, saying all right to Allah is much more difficult than it sounds, right? I think deep down inside we have to think about that one. Even a lot of conflicts happen in the world, a lot of difficulties happen in the world, hardships, oppression. It's not that, you, it's not that we believe that those are good things, but we recognize it's the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And um, Shaykh Abn Qadr Jilani said, Al-i'atirad ala Allah, عند النزول al-aqdar, mawt al-deen, mawt al-tawheed, mawt al-tawakul. He said that to object to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Shaykh Abn Qadr is very strong in his uh, admonitions. He said to object to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when the decree descends, meaning sometimes there's things, they just happen that way, right? When the decree descends, to object to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the death of your deen, it's the death of tawheed, it's the death of tawakkul. It means like the whole thing is gone, you know? He says, المؤمن لا يعلم لما كيف لا يعلم لما وكيف Rather they say بلا the, the believer they don't know why. They don't know how. When they're speaking to Allah, they don't say why. They don't say how. They just say, I submit Allah. That's it. Yeah. And at the same time, he says, that's the first layer of it. The first layer is always with Allah. Every single concept, first layer is always with Allah. Second layer is with the people. Hard cases make bad law. Again, hard cases make bad law. And he said, in the permissible. Note that he said, in the permissible. Not in the impermissible. You know, they want to do something that's not acceptable. You just go along with it. No, it's not okay. The last one, I'll read it. And maybe we'll come back to it next time. So I'll just read it. And then uh, can comment on it next time. Inshallah. It says, be patient in your relationships with others and endure their mistreatment. Again, hard cases make bad luck. Patience and endurance are necessary for healthy relationships. Being patient in our relationships with others and enduring their mistreatment is extremely important for the continuation of relationships unless the wrong behavior leads to sin. So we're not talking about abuse. Right? This is not like someone's abusive, they're neglectful, and you just tolerate it and you endure it. That's not the point. But the point is like in everyday relationships, like sometimes you're going to have a conversation and you'll be like, man, you know, let's do it the other way. Man, 
I just oppressed my wife. Like, I blamed her for something. It wasn't really her fault. I'm in a bad mood. I blamed her for something. I said something I shouldn't have said. It's not really abuse. It's like a little bit lower category. Like, you know, the slips of everyday life. Actually, I can't do it that way because then we're telling her to endure. Or put it the other way. Yeah, flow it however you want. Point is, you're going to have slips in everyday life. The person who made the mistake is they should apologize. And the person who's on the receiving end has to be patient a little bit. Now, this is part of life. Now, again, we're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about extremely like sinful behavior and stuff like that. We're just everyday stuff, you know. Uh, I wasn't supposed to comment. I was supposed to just read it, but I didn't want that to be misunderstood. As it is stated in the proverb, those who look for a perfect friend remain without friends. We should realistically accept that all our friends will have flaws and enter into a relationship with them accordingly. If we accept this in the first place, we should be ready to endure their faults and mistakes. This is called mudara. Mudara entails enduring mistreatment and waiting for the right time to correct it. It prevents many conflicts, fights, and divisions. However, tolerance has a limit. It should not turn into unlawful partnership. If the wrong behavior causes harm, it would not be right to tolerate it. So he clarified it. In such cases, it is necessary to work hard to dissuade friends from that wrong behavior and to prevent them from harming other people. So inshallah, we'll come back to that next time. Anyone have any comments or questions or anything you'd like to share? Yes. That's a really interesting question. Uh, first of all, we should note that not everyone was forgiven in conquest of Mecca. <laughs> right? uh, that's a general thing. Usually we say that. You know, the Prophet came in, he said, if you go to Abu Sufyan's house, you have amnesty. If you go to the Kaaba, you have amnesty, so on. And there were a handful of people, the Prophet said, when you find them, kill them. He did. Sallallahu alayhi wa there are a handful of people who died in the conquest of Mecca. Because these are people who are deemed like their crimes were too great. Okay? So there are people who are going to fall into that category. And there are people who will have crimes that you can't really trust. But you can still give them a chance. You know, subhanAllah, I just, I feel like the Prophet sallallahu and I've said this before, he was the greatest maker of men. He was the greatest maker of men. And those people who he made, and his society contributed to that at some level, you know, it, it made people you could rely on. Say for example, I'm in a community, okay? And... Someone's the imam of that community And they know their community And they know Every day I have 10, 20, 30 people Who are going to be here every day 
for sure a handful of them are going to be around anytime someone's around. And every single one of these people, I can trust them to handle anything that goes down. And the companions were like that, right? Like Abu Bakr is like that, Omar is like that, Uthman is like that, Ali is like that, Abdullah bin Mas'ud is like that, Talha is like that, Zubair is like that. Abdullah bin, like the Prophet them has dozens of people. Every single one of them was an ummah. You know? If you have those kind of people around, what's amazing is you can actually give people a chance. You can give people who have done really bad things a chance. Because I have no question, again, when I come to the first point, I have no question that even if I'm not there, these people are on post. And if this person, and they know the situation, and they know what's going on, and everyone understands, everyone knows each other, right? We all know each other. I know you, you know me, you know my history, you know my family, you know. So, like, this person is now reintegrating into community, and everyone knows who they are. And the Arabs were like that, right? They all knew each other's tribes, they all knew each other's people, right? And to the extent that even they know if something happens, when do I need to step in? When do I not need to step in? What should I be observing? What do I need to be reporting back? This situation, I don't, maybe I shouldn't handle it my, myself. I know this person's cousin. I'm going to talk to his cousin. He's going to enter. They knew all of this stuff. So their way of dealing with conflicts is totally different. You know, that's, that's my impression. I'm just, I, I haven't like read this somewhere or something, but I'm just, that's the way I'm thinking about it. Like, so I think a part of why we have such problem now is that we don't actually have community. We don't. Like it's, it's, it's a bunch of isolated, fragmented people who live in their own world and then they come together from time to time. But it's not actual community. And we can, there can be any number, in, in many places, and not everywhere is like that. Some of these like inner city masajid and stuff like that are actually not like that. Because a lot of people live in the neighborhood, they spend time together, they know each other, stuff like that. It's a little bit different. When you get into like the big mosque model, Oftentimes you're going to have this, you're going to have... Uh, but even still, you could have a big mosque and still be okay. You know, uh, again, if you have like enough reliable people that are always going to be there and you know, okay, this person, and they know, okay, keep an eye out. Like, in, at least my experience in a lot of masajid, oftentimes you'll have people who are, it's not the same, but you have people who are really not well. You know, maybe they're, they're not well psychologically, emotionally, mentally, even developmentally sometimes, to the extent that you can't fully trust how they're going to interpret situations and what they're going to do. But oftentimes the regulars in the community, they know those people. And so they're watching. And I, I've seen this in, in Masajid and stuff, even big Masajid. Like I can say, when I, when I was in ICOI, we had a handful of people that were like this. You're kind of like, okay, I'm watching this brother, like, I'm not sure. And there were a couple incidents like, where, where the brother, like, you know, he kind of went off the hinge a little bit once or twice. But, like, people were there, they understood the situation, they dealt with it. So, and then there will be various levels. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that, yeah. She's saying that things, when things are the qadr of Allah, sometimes you're talking to family and friends and stuff, you tell them qadr Allah, and they don't really, they have a hard time accepting it, perhaps. So there's two ways to look at this. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest, my immediate response, I think, was not the right way in my head. Now there's two ways to look at this. One of them is the su'adhan way, and one of them is the husnadhan way. The su'adhan way is to assume the worst, the husnadhan way is to assume the best. Right? So assuming the worst would be this person probably like they need to review their basic aqidah because like they clearly don't know who Allah is. Right? That's, but that's bad opinion. The good opinion way would be to assume and I think this is actually true that the Muslims do know who Allah is they really do like people know who Allah is they know Allah is in control of everything they know Allah knows everything they know that Allah is powerful if we make that initial assumption then we have to ask a further question which is then why would they reject it why would they have this response and I think that oftentimes that response is actually very reasonable. And it's coming from people using this idea of it's the qadr of Allah to excuse some sort of like passive, non-engaged approach to how to deal with reality. Or sometimes they refer to it as spiritual bypassing, you know. So people say, "Oh, you know, such and such happened, and this is so horrible." And, and I'm saying, "But brother, it's just a, it's the qadr of Allah, qadr of Allah." So, so why are you telling me this right now? Right? You're really saying that because like you don't want to deal with the emotions and the reality and the difficulty of the decision of what you need to do in the situation. We're just going to bypass it, put it on the qadr of Allah. So then my response becomes. Negative to that like I have a little bit of rebellion to that Because No, don't tell me that Like Yeah, I know it's the qadr of Allah And what I decide to do right now in this moment Is also the qadr of Allah So we're, You know, like I, I think that's So I feel like If we assume well And we try to understand that People's emotions are usually valid Like people are really upset For very valid reasons and sometimes like how we feel in the moment is not the best judge of what's really going on. And we have to understand what people are going through and kind of tell them like, you know, subhanAllah, the reality sometimes, and sometimes we have to figure out like if that word is going to trigger people because of the way it's been used, you know. Uh, so you said, look, the, the reality is right now in this moment, this is what's happening. And we have a choice. What are we going to do? You're saying the same thing, actually, <laughs> right? But they might respond to it differently. Um, and this is, you know, this is true with a lot of things. Subhanallah. Huh? Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. They're not necessarily exclusive, but I think that, like if the Prophet comes to someone and they're sick, and he tells them, لا بأس تهور inshallah. This is one of the sunnahs. You know, tell them, don't worry about it, inshallah, it's a purification. That person who the Prophet says that to them, they have zero questions in their heart at the deepest level of the absolute concern and love that the Prophet has for them. So they're able to accept that. Right? But if someone comes and like they're in pain, and they're in grief, and they're in agony, and they're in all of these things, and they don't know that you're with them in that, they don't want to hear it. If they know that you're with them in that, they're ready to hear it. That's different. But I have to be there with them. You know? I think that's... Uh, and it goes back to what we were talking about before. That's a type of listening, right? And not all listening is like listening to words. It's a type of listening is listening to what's beyond the words, what's going on behind the words, what's happening with the person. They didn't even say anything. Like the Prophet them hears people and they didn't even say anything. Right? them. And he's responded to them before he ever says anything. Because the heart, the relationship and what happens with the hearts is it's uh, asra it's much faster than what happens with the limbs so there's already a re- when the when you deal with the prophets on Allah where they send them there's already a relationship that happened way before and then you say this thing and it's it's and it's the thing that you say is an extra layer it's like we were talking about last week about how you change it with your hand and you change it with your tongue and you change it with your heart how like that's that's the realm of the outward world and the realm of the in-world world is You change it with your heart You change it with your tongue You change it with your hand right? So before the Prophet ﷺ ever makes dua for the person who's sick He already changed it with his heart And because he did that There's a different response with the With the hand Or with the tongue Even further with the hand SubhanAllah There's a lot there yeah, yeah. So I was talking with a group of friends and we were discussing what's like the best ways to tell. A couple of opinions. Some of them were like good for us. But then they were saying actually the people 